I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Executive Editor of the American Prospect, David Dayen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. In his inaugural tweet as Majority Leader, Senator Schumer says that the Senate will do business differently, will address the challenges with boldness and courage, listing as his top priorities, tackling the COVID crisis, striving to make the struggle for racial justice more progressive and forcefully addressing climate change. Do you think that those things can be accomplished without nuking the filibuster? Uh, it would certainly be very difficult. Uh, there, there are certainly methods that President Biden can use under his own executive authority to make progress on all of those fronts. Uh, and we have outlined them uh, pretty religiously uh, at the prospect uh, in, a, in a, uh, something we call the Day One Agenda, uh, which is available at dayoneagenda.org. Um, so there's a lot that can be done, particularly on climate, on uh, things like immigration, if you want to talk about racial equity, uh, economically, things on things like student loan cancellation, lowering prescription drug costs. Uh, uh, making sure that federal contractors pay their workers a, a living wage, uh, things like that. Uh, and obviously a, a whole host of things that the, the president can do under their own power with the pandemic. But if you're talking about new legislation, I mean, that really does require uh, uh, it to get through the Senate and under regular order in the Senate, uh, that means getting 10 Republicans to agree with all the Democrats, uh, at least under the current rules. Um, there is a thing called budget reconciliation, which requires a simple majority vote in the Senate. Uh, but there are a couple complications there. First of all, you uh, can only do that once every fiscal year. So there would only be a, a few efforts uh, and abilities to pass a bill, you'd have to basically put everything you want to run for the year that's controversial into one bill uh, and then pass that. Uh, so that's that has a challenge. And number two, it has to be budget related. This is kind of a backdoor process that was put in uh, during the, the, the changeover in rules for how to conduct the federal budget. Uh, and so everything has to have a budgetary purpose. And so you can tie yourself in knots figuring out how do I increase the minimum wage in a way that affects the federal budget? Uh, and it's very hard to see how you can do so. So uh, uh, that means that basically you're talking about taxing and spending power with that budget reconciliation. And that leaves out a host of things. For example, you know, H.R. 1, which is this very uh, critical piece of legislation around voting rights and blocking gerrymandering and, and doing all these democracy reforms, there is no real budgetary impact there. And uh, that would be impossible to pass through reconciliation. So, you know, Democrats really have to make a choice. Do they want to promote democracy in that fashion? Do they want to pass voting rights legislation? Do they want to pass an increase in the minimum wage and all of these other things? Or do they want to maintain this tradition of the filibuster? And to me, it's no contest. Uh, you, you, you know, the, the, the filibuster is, was a sort of an ancient relic, an accident, if you will, of, of the Senate. 
Uh, and uh, majority vote seems pretty much good enough for every other country on earth. And, and why isn't it good enough here? And of course, there's the context that as majority leader, McConnell nuked the filibuster for judicial nominations. So separate and apart from reconciliation, you have this whole other order of business, correct? Supreme Court nominees, um, other appellate federal judicial nominees, they can be filled by a simple majority now. Right. And part of that was not just due to McConnell, but before him, uh, Harry Reid uh, put in a majority vote for executive branch nominees. So that means uh, nominees, you know, for various cabinet agencies or things like that. So uh, for some reason, it's okay that uh, senators can give advice and consent on Supreme Court justices and the secretary of the treasury and the attorney general by a simple majority vote. But legislation, for some reason, because of this quirk, takes 60 votes. And, and it's, it's just not a tenable scenario in an environment where uh, the minority party uh, simply uses that, that filibuster as a tool to block progress over and over and over again. And we saw this throughout the Obama era by Mitch McConnell. And we're, we're poised to see it again unless, uh, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats decide that, that they don't want to bang their head against the wall for two years or four years. Whether or not they are content to bang their head against the wall might be dictated by how much progress they can make on the issues that we just mentioned, specifically the COVID relief package. Um, but at what point do you think, if not immediately, would it be strategic to take that vote, obviously that's a vote that would require Manchin to be on board and the entire Democratic caucus, so the independents who caucus with the Democrats. Um, in your estimation, is the strategic thing for Schumer to put that vote on the floor as soon as he knows Manchin is going to vote yay? Or is the strategic thing to see how much can be accomplished up until that point? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, some members of the Democratic caucus are going to need to be shown rather than told that Republicans are going to obstruct relentlessly and endlessly until they do something about it. So, I mean, Joe Manchin has already said that it, he's he's not interested in the filibuster at this time. But maybe if something he really wants, like a big infrastructure package, gets filibustered by uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, maybe he changes his mind. So I think I think there is the need to sort of pull people along, which is weird because, you know, they're they they have eyes. They 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 they're, they have memories of the Obama era. It wasn't that long ago. And they did see what what McConnell uh, uh, decided to do at that time uh, and and how it succeeded. So. Um, I think there's there's maybe a two prong strategy that they should go forward. Um, you know, on COVID relief, I think there are a couple things that can be done right away that would actually get 60 votes in the Senate. One of them are the direct payments, the two thousand dollars or extending the six hundred dollars that's already been given out to two thousand. I mean, whatever whatever iteration of that it is. Uh, you put that on the floor and I think it can get 60 votes. Uh, you put money for vaccines, uh, which is, uh, you know, 
every dollar we put towards getting more shots into people's arms right now is going to pay back exponentially um, in terms of getting us to normalcy quicker. Uh, the economic impact of that and the public health impact of that is is just incalculable. So I think if you put those two things on the floor, you could actually get those passed in the Senate through regular order. Other things like state and local government aid and, uh, you know, all of the other things that are in the, the COVID relief bill, expansions to child tax credit, uh, et cetera, uh, that you're probably going to have to take through reconciliation. But you, you can do that because almost all of the things in Biden's plan for COVID relief has a budgetary impact and would survive reconciliation. So you can, I think for COVID relief, you can probably do it through a two-pronged approach. Other things like the minimum wage, like HR1, like uh, immigration reform, uh, much, much, much more difficult to do through reconciliation. And if you do COVID relief that way, you've, you've kind of, you've blown the one bill that you get a year to do that. And you won't have another opportunity until the next fiscal year begins, which is in the fall. So, uh, there will be a period there where the Senate will be in stasis. Uh, there won't, won't be an ability to get much done other than judicial nominees and, and executive branch appointees. And uh, at that point, you have to appeal to Democrats and say, look, the reason we lost power before is because we just didn't do enough to meet people's tangible needs. And we need to have the ability to do that. And and we we you know, if we don't get it, we're going to lose this majority. Uh, I, I think that's the approach that Schumer can take after he, you know, uh, is shown after members are shown by McConnell. That, that McConnell is just willing to obstruct everything. While the Senate pursues the COVID relief, would it not make sense for um, timed with the impeachment trial and its commencement to put forward HR1, uh, an anti-corruption agenda, uh, the restoration of voting rights, as something that could be salvaged with a simple majority vote in the Senate? Uh, it seems like this is a moment of momentum for democracy and coming away from the inaugural address, there's a real sense of urgency. So of the issues that would seem to require uh, nuking the filibuster, a John Lewis Voting mm -hmm. Rights Act, expansion of Supreme Court, added states, the one that seems maybe doable without nuking the filibuster is voting rights. Yeah, I mean, you would think. Uh, and, and the Senate, uh, designated their version of HR1 S1, uh, which clearly signals that this is the top priority. I mean, that, that it's, it's very important to the House and Senate to, uh, you know, to get these changes in. Um, I, I don't know that, that Republic, I mean, I kind of do know that Republicans aren't there. Uh, on, on these issues. Uh, they, they, you know, look what's happening in Georgia right now, where, uh, members of the state legislature in the wake of losing those Senate runoff seats amid very high turnout in black communities, um, uh, are saying we need to make changes to, uh, the voting system. And, and one, uh, legislator said we need to make those changes or else we, as in the Republicans, aren't going to be able to win elections anymore. So uh, they clearly see uh, voter suppression as their means to cling to power. 
And, uh, you know, if you have that mindset, how are you going to agree to these democracy reforms that would just, you know, obliterate your ability to sort of entrench the Republican Party within uh, the the set of voting laws that there are right now. There it is, David. On that first order of business, it may require nuking the filibuster. I mean, on that central legislation that was proposed in the House while Speaker Pelosi was already in the majority, um, and it could meet a dead end quite instantaneously. Right. Um, you know, I, mean, I think that's very interesting. And I think, you know, one thing that came out today is uh, uh, Jim Clyburn, who was the, the, you know, is the House uh, Majority Whip, number three in the House, uh, was asked about the filibuster. And he said that it's a civil rights issue, that uh, uh, the filibuster is a, a barrier to progress historically and today on civil rights. And if you appeal in that fashion, uh, I, I think you have a, a better chance of getting Democrats on board. Now, is that going to move Joe Manchin? Is that going to move John Hickenlooper? Is that going to move Kirsten Sinema? Uh, you know, remains to be seen. But uh, I think you have to look through history that the longest filibuster ever was the 1957 Civil Rights Act, when Strom Thurmond filibustered for, I believe, more than a full day. Uh, on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Um, historically, uh, the filibuster has been used as a way to maintain uh, white privilege. And, uh, you know, given the Democratic base, a multiracial base uh, that and, and given the events of the past year in the wake of the George Floyd situation and Black Lives Matter protests, I think that's one way you can appeal to the, everyone in the Democratic Party that you're going to need to sign off and say, look, we, we cannot disappoint our base once again. We need to make progress on this. And progress means ending the filibuster. At the prospect, you've been cutting edge and exclusively reporting on the Biden transition, Biden's cabinet selections and future appointees. And it's a bit of a reality check from some of your reporting on just how vigorously his administration would um, restore or achieve equity in the American economy and, and what his definition of normalcy is, because uh, normalcy to people like Elizabeth Warren, you know, is an economy and, and tax code uh, of uh, 50 years ago, if not longer. Um, so based on the latest appointments um, at the cabinet level and sub Cabinet. Where do you think over these next four years there is a lot of promise for this administration to deliver equity in the economy? And where do you think that it's going to be a dead end for progressive? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, um, you know, I think that progressives came into this transition period with a strategy, uh, with a real uh, uh, look towards personnel as being an important component of policy and an eye towards getting the right personnel in place uh, at these various agencies to make progress. So uh, was that 100% a success? Uh, no. <laughs> was, uh, was it a, a, a pretty good success in certain discrete parts? Uh, I think so. Uh, I think on climate, 
there are a number of pretty good appointees uh, that I think, and I think that that President Biden has has shown that this is a real priority for him, even with his his day one actions, things like uh, you know terminating the permits of the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, or convening a group, and this was one of our day one agenda pieces, actually, a pretty obscure one, uh, convening an interagency group uh, to reassess what is called the social cost of carbon, uh, which in rulemaking, you have to say, you have to do a cost benefit analysis. And if you say, well, the the social cost of carbon is this great, uh, then it spurs action uh, on regulatory avenues around climate. Uh, so it's a, a small but very important shift. Um, so I think on climate, you're going to see progress. I think on things like consumer protection and financial regulation, uh, the people that have been put in place, I think, are poised to make progress. Rohit Chopra will be the uh, director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's an Elizabeth Warren uh, acolyte. Uh, he's, he's someone that has uh, proven himself at the Federal Trade Commission over the last few years. Um, I think he's going to make a great CFPB chair. Uh, Gary Gensler at the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, which has the ability to really crack down on public companies, on private equity firms. Uh, he's, he's someone who proved himself during the Obama administration as one of the strongest financial regulators. I think he's going to do a good job. Um, uh, other places where we might not see as much progress, uh, for example, um, the fact that the uh, Department of Agriculture went to a figure uh, in Tom Vilsack, who was uh, USDA secretary under the Obama administration and disappointed a lot of family farmers who were going up against corporate agriculture. Uh, Vilsack left uh, USDA and he immediately became a lobbyist for the dairy industry. And now he's gone back into government. Uh, so that is, uh, uh, pretty concerning to me, uh, on, uh, corporate power more generally, things like, uh, antitrust, uh, the justice department's antitrust division just, uh, in the last few days, we've reported that some of the leading candidates to take over the antitrust division, uh, have ties to Google, have ties to Amazon, have ties to big banks and pharmaceutical firms. Um, so that's, uh, very concerning. In fact, that, that Chopra, uh, left the Federal Trade Commission, which is the other big agency around antitrust, to go to CFPB is another big concern because it leaves a hole at the FTC where he was doing really good work. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be a sort of a constant state of vigilance for progressives to make sure that Joe Biden is, is keeping up with uh, promises that he's made uh, that these, uh, you know, where he has put in nominees that maybe are less than what the uh, progressive community has wanted, that, uh, you know, they, they are vigilant in pushing those people in a, in a better direction. Um, and that, uh, and most important, I think, that, that Biden is taking advantage of the significant authority he has to do things on his own. You know, whether or not this filibuster situation gets figured out in Congress, uh, President Biden still has significant uh, ability to uh, uh, do many of the things that I talked about uh, with respect to the day one agenda. Now, he put together a bunch of executive orders uh, on his first day in office, uh, the majority of which, the vast majority of which, 
really reversed bad Trump policies, which is great. But where we were in 2016 isn't necessarily good enough. It's not reversing Citizens United. It's not it's not bringing about the revitalization of democracy in systemic ways. And that was going to be my final question, David. With respect to the Justice Department, its fight against domestic terrorism, the prosecution of Trump, uh, we don't know very much at all about how Garland and his uh, colleagues at DOJ will handle that. Uh, and, and we also don't know what Supreme Court decisions may be made in the next year, which also could catapult Schumer and Biden to decide to nuke the legislative filibuster. Yeah, uh, two, two things there. So one on Garland. I mean, I think they're going to make policing a priority. Garland historically in his legal rulings has actually been pretty pro-police, to, to be honest. Uh, but I think there's significant pressure uh, from uh, the African-American community, from the civil rights community to, uh, you know, restore some of the uh, the various uh, oversight that the Justice Department did on local police departments and, and, to, and to try to make change there. There's also the, uh, you know, the Justice and Policing Act, which uh, was passed in the House last year. Uh, which could come up again. And that's another one that's not budgetary in nature. So, you know, you'd have to find 60 votes for that in the Senate. And that could be another one that triggers the filibuster again, a sort of a civil rights issue. So uh, it's, you know, we'll see what happens with, with regard to policing and, and justice department oversight. The head of the civil rights division is a, a, a someone who's, who comes out of that community. Um, uh, I believe it's Kristen Clark from uh, the, the, lawyers, the Lawyers Guild, uh, and, and, and she's generally pretty good. With respect to Supreme Court decisions, I mean, we have a 6-3 conservative court, and uh, they're going to continue their process of, of chipping away and, and, and maybe frustrating uh, uh, Biden on various, uh, various priorities that he has. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting, we did a, a pretty good feature about this, is that uh, you can, you know, a lot of Supreme Court decisions are based on statutory interpretation. So they look at the statute and they decide whether or not the plain reading of the statute allows uh, a certain action to take place. And one thing Congress can do to counteract that is just clarify the statute and overturn a negative Supreme Court ruling. And there are dozens of these Supreme Court rulings that uh, that is an available possibility for Congress. And I think that needs to be, now that they have the uh, Democrats have the majority, that needs to be a real priority right now, that you can override the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not have to be the last word. The legislative branch has the ability in these cases where it's not constitutional in nature, but you're just looking at statutory interpretation the, the, the Congress can redo that statutory interpretation and, and really make progress uh, by fixing a lot of these bad rulings that have come out of past Supreme Courts. David, Dan, thank you so much for your insight today. Absolutely. Thank you, Al.